Welcome to Practice Makes, the Oxford Reimagining Performance Podcast, where we put leading scholars in conversation with actors, directors, and other practitioners to crack open the connections between theater research and performance in practice. I'm Madeline Seidenberg. And I'm Helen Dallas, and we're PhD students at Oxford. We've worked in theater as directors and dramaturgs. And now we also ask academic questions about theater. In this week's episode, we speak with Alecky Blythe and Molly Flynn about documentary and verbatim theatre. Alecky Blythe is an award-winning playwright specialising in verbatim theatre. In 2003, she set up the theatre company Recorded Delivery, a name that describes the specific verbatim technique her work employs, which we'll be hearing more about very soon. Alecky's plays include Come Out Eli, The Girlfriend Experience, Little Revolution and London Road, co-authored with composer Adam Corp which won Best Musical at the Critics Circle Awards. Her hugely successful new play, Our Generation, was performed at the National Theatre and Chichester Festival Theatre this year. And Dr. Molly Flynn is a lecturer at Birkbeck University of London. She specializes in Russian and Ukrainian theater with a focus on documentary performance. She is the author of Witness on Stage, Documentary Theater in 21st Century Russia, which has excitingly just come out in paperback. So we wanted to start this conversation with the two of you by asking, what is documentary or verbatim theater? Um, shall, shall I shall I explain? Because I, I sort of I suppose I have a particular um, approach to it, but I know I work within a broader church. Mm. Um, so um, I I'm quite um, puritanical in my approach to verbatim. Um, Hence, actually, the the name recorded delivery um, being, uh, you know, the, the 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 name that we chose for the company, because um, with the way that I approach it, I record conversations on a dictaphone uh, with real people, um, often um, but not always, um, about an event that maybe affects a community, um, and then I will um, spend quite a long time trying to find a narrative within that community off the back of these events Um, and then edit all of that material down and then um, in the performance um, the actors um, traditionally I mean I've slightly moved on now but uh, for me they um, have in the past worn earphones and copied exactly those words as they were said although more recently um, the actors have actually kind of learnt the lines but they've learnt them with the real life um, intonations Um, but um, uh, that's probably verbatim at its sort of purest form but that doesn't diminish from other works um, where um, possibly interviews are done and the actors never hear the interviews. Maybe they're, you know, transcribed and that's that's the text that the actors are given. Um, or in the case of David Hare, um, with uh, work like um, Stuff Happens, um, you know, he will um, do lots and lots of interviews and the, the actors will then be hot-seated. Um, well, actually the actors will go and meet the real life characters and then come back and be hot seated um, by the rest of the company. And then he will kind of piece together the work from those interviews. So actually it's quite a few degrees away Mm. from the pure audio, um, not to diminish it at all. Um, And then of course you've got the, the more of the sort of the court tribunal plays, which came out of now the kiln used to be the tricycle, Nick Kent, his work. Um, which would be sort of edited court transcripts, um, like the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry and the Bloody Sunday, uh, most sort of famously. So, yeah, it's quite a, you know, there, there are lots of approaches to it. Um, and my only reason for my take is that's what I, that's what I learned in a workshop. Um, and I should mention Mark Wing Davey, um, who I learned this particular technique from, and he himself had learnt it from Anna Devere Smith, who you may all be familiar mm-hmm. with, um, who I've sadly never met or worked with. But yeah, my work is basically, yeah, um, brought down from, from her really via Mark. 
What a lovely, generous answer to that question. I was sort of shut up now. <laughs> no, no, I was just sort of expecting that that you might have sort of disagreeing answers, but the that sort of explanation of the broad variations of 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 possibility for verbatim is so so lovely, and your your sort of lineage of of learning about it is is um, so generous, Molly. I wonder if you have any. Um, anything sort of to add to that in terms of studying verbatim and documentary theater as well as sort of being in the room for it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. That was a really wonderful kind of summation of so many of the different forms. I use the term documentary theater in my research um, partly because that's the term that people use in the regions that I'm writing about as a kind of umbrella term that includes lots of different types of theater that are based on real life events. So it um, includes verbatim and recorded delivery, uh, but it also includes things like autobiographical theater or um, a living newspaper or witness theater in which people who are not necessarily actors or performers are telling their own stories on stage. So, um, yeah, I think there is also just some difference because often in the UK, the term verbatim theater is used to uh, describe not only performances in which actors are speaking word for word uh, interviews that had taken place before, but also to describe a kind of broad range of theater that uses documentary materials. Whereas in Ukraine and in Russia and other places in East Central Europe, the term documentary theater is more commonly used to describe that type of work. I, I was really interested um, in sort of from both of your answers what you're talking about kind of both um, generic approaches almost approaches of a genre but also very specific personal styles like do you see yourselves as creatives and academics is having a style is is that can there be a style in documentary theatre? Yeah, I, I I think so. Um, I I I think I do have a a style, although um, I think it's um, evolving. Um, you know, and and it and it has it has evolved from in in lots of ways actually. Um, from if you know, come out Eli, um, and it's partly driven by budget, but all, um, because we were five actors playing, um, I think between us. 70 parts between the five of us um and we were wearing headsets which which plugged into so each person had a mini disc player and this is just because of the you know the time and the the budget restrictions really you know back then that's how you kind of recorded material um so if you were in a, at the beginning of the show we all had to kind of press play kind of like backstage three two one play on our mini disc players hope that we were all kind of in sync um, but then if you were in a scene with somebody else, it was fine, you know, monologue to monologue. But then if you suddenly had to kind of drop into a two-hander or a three-hander, you'd each have a splitter on your machine. So you'd you'd sort of work across the stage, plug into the other person, or you might have a massive extension lead kind of snaking all the way across the stage if you wanted to be able to kind of have some distance from that person. Um, and I think in, in, in those kind of, in that style, it was a really good reminder. It was a physical reminder to the audience that we were, you know, listening to the audio. And I always kind of think that's important that the audience get it, that they're like, oh, this is real people's words. You know, there seems to be kind of more power, I think, in thinking, oh, it's, it, it's actually happened. It's actually, and it's also how they said it. Um, and then as the, you know, as, we kind of got into sort of slightly more sophisticated theatres with better budgets. Um, the shows we went from wearing um, into wearing earphones where you literally just plugged into a kind of radio pack. And so if you had to be in a scene with somebody, you didn't have to one plug and plug in because you were all being controlled to by the, uh, you know, by the stage manager. So, and you couldn't even necessarily see because we'd have like the wraparound earphones and we weren't trying to hide them, but, Obviously, people get so involved in the story. And even though you put it in the programme, you know, the actors are listening. So, of course, people don't always read the programme. Um, and I might even try to play some audio over the PA at the beginning of the show where you might hear my voice, you know, 
coming in and then it would fade out. And still, you know, the audience wouldn't necessarily get it. And I used to kind of think, oh, that's a, that's a shame in a way that they don't realise it's real. And then with London Road, we actually moved away from the audio, um, not from the audio, but from the earphones entirely, um, you know, and learnt it with that detail. Um, so then it's like, yeah, how do you get that across? You, you know, um, so I think for me, that would be my, the style and and then in the in the experiencing it i think you can sort of hopefully you can sort of feel the real because of the ums and the errs and the slightly kind of messy dialogue that you get with verbatim that you don't get with um fictional text so much um but like i say yeah it's evolved so um, now, you know, things are better lit and, you know, full costumes and it feels a little bit more like, you know, a, a proper play, a bit l less rough and ready. But in a way, do you lose some beauty in that? You know, it's like a... Um, yeah, I actually love the idea of, of like carrying those cords across and connecting yeah. to one mm -hmm. another in those moments. That sounds, I mean, I, I didn't see that production live. I was before I lived in the UK, but it, it yeah. sounds like... Uh, quite a beautiful moment in a way. Yeah, it's such a physical reminder, you know, and kind of manifestation of what the actors are literally having to do, you know. Come out, come out, Eli, which um, which you were talking about first there, Aleki, was in, it was 2002, wasn't it, about the Hackney siege? So it's sort of yeah, 20 yeah. years of, of technical difference that you're, that you're spanning between that and, and our generation, which I hadn't really thought about in terms of style, but of course, exactly. that, you know, that really changes it's what you have at your hands. It's completely, yeah, it's changed everything. And even now, even if, you know, even if, I, you know, I was still doing something on, on that kind of budget now, um, we wouldn't be working with mini discs. We'd all have smartphones, and there is an app you can get, um, which means that you know everybody can be listening to the same thing run off a Mac by the you know. So actually, you can all be in sync and listening to your onto your smartphone. So um, even now, if you were yeah, like I say, doing something, you wouldn't necessarily have to have all of that plugging in you know, you'd have to really go out your way to go, okay, we're going to do an old school style mini disc player version, um, you know, to, to set it back then. Yeah, 20 years ago. I suppose as well as, I mean, that, that brings up the point that as well as the, um, the, the difference in performance, one of the stylistic differences is whether you, you actually can go and record someone to use for the verbatim. Like I was thinking about some of the ways that you navigated that with the... Um, for anyone who didn't see our generation, which I'm sure we will talk about in more detail later, but the third act um, is in lockdown. So the ways in which um, the recording can navigate, not being able to record with people in person are, are really innovative and use a lot of uh, projection on screen and the sort of Zoom call box that we are all in right now. Um, and that made me think, I mean, Molly, is that is that something that's uh, relevant to your work and about the the ways in which you know is is it possible in in ukrainian documentary theater to get access to these recordings so easily or is it is it more often written text or a mix of both yeah it's an interesting question um in the context of ukrainian documentary theater and maybe i'll kind of come back to this later actually a more uh, a form that has really come to prominence in recent years is more uh, what I mentioned before, witness theater in which people speak their own stories on stage. But um, the question of kind of what types of sources and documents are accessible definitely did come into play in terms of the research that I did on Russian documentary theater. Um, for example, one of the plays that I wrote about in my book is called One Hour, 18 Minutes. And it's a play about the um, events leading up to the murder of Sergei Magnitsky, who was a Russian attorney that was sort of uncovered the biggest state corruption case of that time um, and was murdered in prison. And the play actually uses some verbatim texts, for example, interviews with his mother, about those events, um, but it also incorporates a lot of 
imagined texts that the playwright wrote herself um, based on evidence that was kind of in the public domain and, and based on um, what we know to have happened. But in that instance, there was no way <laughs> to interview those state officials, right? There was no way to kind of access those sources. And so there's a kind of quality to some of the documentary theater in Russia where part of what it was doing at that time was kind of pointing out the lack of documents or the lack of reliability of documents or kind of uh, bringing into public view questions about the status of documents within the official domain. Thank you so much for explaining that example to us, Molly. Wow. Um, could I then ask maybe quite a, quite a fundamental question about research and practice as they relate to documentary theatre? What, what is the relationship between the research that goes into making documentary theatre, the recordings, the gatherings of pieces of evidence, and putting together the actual performance that an audience watches? Um, well, um, I think when you're doing the collecting, I always try to keep in mind the audience when I'm asking my questions, because even though the collecting is not a theatrical event in itself, in fact, it's quite the opposite and you should try to make it as intimate as possible and not to not so that the interviewee doesn't feel self-conscious. You're actually trying to work against that kind of it being kind of showy. I don't want um, people to be kind of like necessarily putting on a show for me. I sort of want to kind of cut through that and sort of kind of get to the real. But that said, when I'm asking my questions, I'm always thinking, what does the audience know and what do they need to know? So if the character, for if the interviewee is talking about something that I can see, but I'm like, oh, the audience aren't going to know what he's referring to. Do you know what I mean? I've got to keep on going, oh, can you just sort of explain that? Can you? And that was something that I had to kind of keep on drilling into the collectors, actually, was often they would kind of get material and they'd be like, oh, yeah, no, I've got this and this was really good and this happened and blah, 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 blah. And then you'd edit it, you kind of go, yeah, we, actually you can't use that. It doesn't actually hold up on its own because yes, you were seeing that and you knew that because somebody had said something else. But if you take your conversations out of it or whatever, that doesn't kind of stand up on its own. Do you see what I mean? So you've just yeah. always got to be thinking, hang on a minute, what's the end result? If I take that out, if I take my voice out, whatever, what am I left with? Okay, no, I'm going, I need them to kind of, explain that or so I am all the time as you're recording you are thinking how is this going to work on stage and you know can I make this theatrical yeah so it, it's kind of working on both levels because you're trying to be kind of present and listening and keep your kind of antenna really tuned in case they mention something that links with somebody else, something else that somebody else has mentioned that then you can tie in thematic or whatever. But at the same time, you want to be thinking about actually the end result and how that might sort of play out. Um, yeah, on stage, but you're not necessarily because of course there's so much editing and so much re um, I should say recontextualizing. I mean, not massively, but I mean, for example, there's a well, you know, lots of the songs in in London Road, um, which for for those uh, listeners who don't know, it was was um, a, ended up being a a musical um, uh, created from interviews with um, the community of Ipswich um, responding to the murders of five. Um, sex workers who were killed back in 2006 um and there was a, a song in that um called you automatically think it could be him which was sort of the women's response at the time of the murders to you know the, the fear and thinking that like every man was a potential suspect you know is that the murder is that the murder and no one had been kind of 
you know, arrested yet. And there was real palpable kind of fear. And in the show, it's all seemingly set in like one cafe. Um, but in reality, the, the material was taken from some girls standing at a bus stop, some people in one cafe, some people in another cafe, some people out in the town, whatever. So, but, you know, I, I feel like, you know, there are some things that you can cheat and completely pull out of one reality and put it in another, because actually what they're all talking about is this, you know, kind of common, common fear. So yeah, sometimes things are completely kind of pulled out of one world and put into another for your storytelling purposes. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of that goes on. And that, to me, that's, that's um, the fun part, but also it might come into what we want to talk about later in terms of ethically, <laughs> you know, how far can you pull it away from how it actually happened? which is a whole other can of worms. <laughs> oh, definitely. That's fascinating, Anarchy. Thank you. And what about you, Molly, as, as someone who works as an academic as well as a, as a practitioner of theatre? Yeah, I think um, for me, um, and I'm sure this is different for different theatre makers, but for me, one of the big differences in the approach to research in those ways is that as a theater maker part of the things one of the things that we train to do is to trust our impulses without always asking why right but you know in the example that you've just given Eliki, like that there is you knew for some reason that these testimonies that were taken from different places could come together generatively into that one space, right? And maybe you had, maybe it's because they were about the same topic, but also in another sense, surely you just knew, right? Yeah. Whereas as an academic researcher, um, one of the things that we are trained to do is to be constantly asking why, 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 why? And um, that certainly shifts the way you work with the material um, and the way and the way you write about it. Um, however, I do think that there is also a creative element to you know working with sources in the in the context of academic research and making those choices about you know what to include, how to craft, how to craft the narrative of the study that you're trying to communicate so that it reflects what you have seen, right? And what you believe to be true about that material. Um, so I, I do think there's some similarities, but for me, I would say that the process of theater, of making theater and the process of studying theater have that kind of, that one essential difference, which is a certain, um, ruthlessness of questioning <laughs> that can um that yeah that can shape my academic research differently it's so interesting because I, I know Helen and I are obviously in the middle of research and we're also both people who have who have made theater and that um sense of when the research starts to come together into a narrative and sort of acknowledging your own perspective in that narrative is is a really interesting moment when you're when you're doing research and I guess we're circling around questions here about judgment and about ethics but before we get into that I wonder Aliki if if you might tell us <laughs> I'm, I'm so tempted to say what the plot is but that's obviously not at all what I want to ask what is our generation what did you once you had all of this information what like how did you shape it and and what now sort of on the other side of it do you feel like is the thread of the play it's a really good question and actually um it's been the hardest one to structure actually and it was a question that all the while that i was making it um, you know, Rufus at the NT would be sort of like, so what is the story? Is there, a you know, mm. because of course you've got, you know, the, the, the idea that there wasn't really at the beginning, we didn't know what the plot might be and if there would be one. 
but we just had to trust that if you follow 12 individuals so the the idea for the show the genesis of the idea was follow 12 kids over five years to see them go from you know the, the maturation process I suppose was the plot to see them going from being children into young adults because you meet them I mean they're not all exactly in the same year but they're they, you know, the, the, the youngest at the beginning of the story are sort of 12, 13. And then, you know, by the end, they've got to, you know, sort of 16, 17, 18. That's, that's the kind of spread that you're looking at. And so, and uh, you've got uh, six different regions in the country. So two kids in six different schools um, in England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Um, and yeah, I didn't know what, you know, the story was going to be. I mean, obviously, things would happen to those individual children. Um, heartache, um, you know, exam stress. There were certain moments that I knew that, um, okay, I could hit. So, like, exams, right, let's make sure our collectors, we're all out there trying to capture a bit of exam stress, try to be there for results. So there were some, because of the kind of school calendar, there were moments that I could go, right, we definitely know we want to get that. But of course, there are other things in their lives. Um, I don't know, parents splitting up or them falling in love for the first time. You don't know when that's going to happen. Um, so it was quite, you know, sort of difficult to try to get those things as they happen because my uh my uh favored way to work is to be very spontaneous and try to capture things in the moment um I think work is stronger when you capture something as it's happening rather than you know six months afterwards or you know if, if somebody's um having a bad day you kind of want to be there on the bad day you don't want to hear about it a couple of weeks later when they're like oh everything's fine now and you know it's okay and blah, blah, blah. you know you you sort of want to get the you want to get the emotional you know temperature of it as it's hitting um and we couldn't always do that because normally I do do that and I can you know be on the phone with a with a a character and they could be like oh this is happening I'm like great okay I'm gonna get on the train I'm gonna get in my car and can I come down and we can talk and I can sort of try and capture this bit whereas with the children you've got a much more formal uh, you know and understandably of course um for safeguarding purposes structure that you have to work within um you'd always have to have like two weeks notice to set up the um interviews you can't be contacting the kids directly you've got to go through the school or the or the parents so all those things do slightly kind of just uh just kind of waters down the kind of heat of really kind of getting you know the big things landing with their kind of emotional intensity so you know we sort of had to work around a few of those things but sorry i'm going off on a bit of a tangent um but um so the the that the plot, the overall plot would be, you know, the, the, the coming of age of these youngsters in modern Britain. Um, and because you've got 12 individual storylines to follow, that's actually really a bit too many to try to kind of hold on to over the course of an evening. So we needed some other kind of communal moments where you could bring them all together and it was, I think, stumbling on that, um, realizing actually, if I can create these, what I call ensemble moments, where you might just get a line or two from each of the children about kind of big topics that are com common to all of them. They sort of acted as um, sort of poems um, every once in a while where, because you might not have heard from one child for a little bit, because of course not all 12 are gonna have as dynamic stories as the others and not all were, you know, as uh, loquacious and, you know, some turned out to be, you know, shyer and others kind of came into their own or whatever. Um, so what it was great was like, oh, you'd suddenly have like a beat where everyone comes together and talks about social media or 
everyone comes together and talks about love um, or everyone comes together and talks about body image. And it was, they were really useful because you go, oh yeah, there's that kid again. We haven't heard from them for about 15 minutes, but you just have a little slice of them and it brings them alive again. So yeah, they, they were sort of um, thematic, thematic moments that kind of acted as a glue to pull these otherwise disparate stories when they were getting a bit disparate together because it was a real challenge to try and keep those 12 lines all sort of, you know, not going off in too many different directions. Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, thank you for that, Alec. It's It's really nice to sort of have moments to think deeply about one work. Like we obviously want to think about the Beethoven documentary theatre as a whole form, but we don't want to generalise too much. I mean, you know, yeah. almost, almost as you were saying, like if you can get one specific voice on it that's maybe more meaningful and I wanted to say therefore like Molly I think that you also had um a specific bit of theatre or project that you were going to tell us about that I'm very excited to hear about yeah well actually kind of following on from the theme of teenager stories <laughs> um I thought I could tell you a little bit about some of the projects that I have written about and participated in in some some ways in Ukraine. Um, there was uh, one of the companies that I have written about that was founded um, in 2015 when the war had just started the year before. Um, I think it's, well, it's probably important to say that, um, you know, we've all been following Russia's war in Ukraine since February 24th, but we don't necessarily see in the media um, that this war has been going on for eight years, right? That this war actually started, Russia's war in Ukraine started in 2014. Oh, and theater makers, um, theater makers in Ukraine have been responding to the war with incredible innovation and commitment ever since that time. And one of the projects uh, that emerged in the early years of the war was a group called the Theater of Displaced People. And this was a group that worked exclusively in documentary theater and exclusively in this form of witness theater that I've already mentioned. And um, a lot of the projects that they created were with teenagers who were living in sit Ukrainian controlled cities close to the front line. So these are cities where um, people, the cities that were shelled essentially, but at the time of working were, were um, in Ukrainian control, but very close to the areas that were occupied. Um, and often these families, you know, uh, people who lived in these cities had kind of families on both sides of the front line and um, had a real uh, diversity of background and beliefs. So this uh, group of theater makers, the, the company was founded by a Ukrainian playwright named Natalia Vedishbit and a German director named Georg Chanel. Um, as well as uh, a, a really solid and incredible group of, of team members would travel to these cities and create projects with teenagers there in which the teenagers would tell their own stories on stage. And sometimes those stories were about the war, um, but often those stories were about their lives, you know, teenager lives. <laughs> and um, one of the projects that I participated in, for example, was called um, What My Mom and Dad Should Never Know. Hmm. And they were stories about, uh, you know, growing up and hanging out and making friends and falling in love and the same kinds of stories that you're describing from our generation. Um, but the difference is that these kids were growing up on the front line of a war. Hmm. And um, some of the projects direct that addressed that question more directly. For example, one of the projects was called Children and Soldiers. And this, in the, this was run in four different cities um, with four different groups in which they brought a group of between seven and 10 teenagers together with uh, the same number of soldiers who were stationed in their city. And often those soldiers were from other parts of Ukraine, but had come, you know, to to fight that war and had been stationed in those towns for some time. And there was, um, there was a complexity to the dynamics 
of the war in that early years, which is changed significantly in the face of the kind of brutality that we see in the war today. But um, at the time there was some uh, animo there, there could be some animosity and some kind of stereotypes about people from Eastern Ukraine who were living in that town and soldiers who were maybe from Western Ukraine. And one of the things that this project did was it brought those two groups of people together and put them into dialogue with one another and created a space in which they could all discuss together their experiences of that war. And one of the really amazing things about that project, it seems to me, was also that it was not only the workshopping of those conversations that brought the group in communication with each other, but also was public presentation of those stories for everybody else in the city, right? Including the parents who, because of generational differences, might not have been able to kind of take those steps to bridge those gaps themselves but then have the opportunity to see their own children on stage, you know, in dialogue with people that they, they previously thought of themselves as completely different from, for example. And in that way, these projects brought together not only the participants who learned to tell their stories and to take agency of their stories, but also a whole kind of community around them. Wow. And they're playing themselves, are they, the kids? They're not making up fictional versions of themselves in order to tell a story. Exactly, that's right. So they're telling their own stories. And one of the really impressive elements of the type of work that this company does is that they work really closely with the kids. I mean, they also work with adults in different contexts. But in these projects, for example, they work very closely with these kids to help them uh, kind of refine the text of their story, right? The narrative, how to kind of, how to tell a story, but also how to not act while telling the story. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, like how to be able to be present in sharing that and take agency over it and uh, feel the power of being able to tell a story, but without pretending to tell it or pretending to be something other than who you are, which mm. actually, um, is it is a kind of because I have worked somewhat in that technique with these artists it's really hard yeah harder than <laughs> right? it of course yeah absolutely and yeah. um yeah I actually remember asking one of the um students who this was in 2017 that I was there working on this project and he had been involved in one of the first projects in 2015 and I asked him you know is it hard to to learn to tell your stories in these ways. And he said, oh yeah, it was at first, but now I'm used to it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. It, well, it's interesting because with our generation, you know, like there were a lot of kids when we were kind of doing the selecting process, you know, like the casting of them, you know, you could sort of hear so that the, the collectors would go and do interviews in their various schools that they were assigned and then send me back bits. And I'd listen through and be like, oh yeah, no, maybe this child or this one. And, and the ones that immediately I'd go, no, would be like, no, because you could hear they're doing too much mm. kind of like me, me, choose me, choose, you know. Yeah. Um, and especially if they kind of wanted to be actors or whatever, I'd probably be like, no, let's not go for them. <laughs> because yes, you sort of worry about that presentational side. So I bet that that was tough actually to kind of get through that. Um, yeah, I think it was. I mean, and especially, you know, and I guess this comes around to the quest question of ethics again, which we're still sort of circling around. But like, you know, in a lot of these projects, these kids are talking about real trauma, real, real and recent traumas. Mm. Um, mm. And they do so with an incredible candid presence. And without a kind of excess pathos, like you almost couldn't imagine that somebody, I guess for those of us who haven't lived through war in that way, it's hard to imagine what it would be like to tell that story yeah. um, with the subtlety and presence and honesty that they do. And that's something that they've learned to do through work with these theater makers. Yeah. But I also think it's extraordinary that, because often I've found the case um, with material that is 
you know, more um, upsetting. Um, that if you if you kind of wrote that and had an actor kind of say it, the actor would probably emote really quite a lot. And when they listen to the audio, it is kind of amazing how actually the real life person, generally it's more matter of fact than you would ever imagine, which is, which is, which is sort of really interesting. And actors will then often say when they go back to, you know, fictionalized text, they'll, they'll try and do different things with it to what they would um, automatically think having worked with verbatim. Are they, I'm, I'm fascinated with the other work. What other sort of work? Theater, I mean, is that still going on, theatre work in Ukraine? Um, well, that company is no longer in existence, but there are, um, I mean, there have been a lot of different projects over the last eight years in particular. And I guess that's, that's what my research is kind of focused on right now is this period between the Maidan revolution in 2014 and the full-scale invasion in 2022, uh, because there was in that time such an incredible and vibrant movement of socially engaged theater and in particular this kind of witness theater not only with um, teenagers but also with um, people who with veterans a lot of uh, projects with veterans who'd served on the front line and um, for example one of the plays that I have been writing about together with um, a Ukrainian colleague named Yelizaveta Elinik. We have been writing about a, a play called Commodity that was created by um, Alex Adarian, who at the time, at the, when the war started in 2015, was a 23-year-old film student. Um, and then he, he participated in the Maidan Revolution. Once the war started, he served as a volunteer medic on the front line. Um, and he wrote an autobiographical performance about that experience. Uh, and it's really an incredible piece of work because of the way that it is so brutally honest about, about, the, about the complexity of war, essentially, and about the complexity of human lives and the, the notion of the enemy and the way war can be used for profit and the way the media portrayal of the war creates kind of narratives around heroes that in his experience were not necessarily um, representing the full intricacy of, of what happens at war. And yeah, so this is one of the projects that I have been writing about and thinking about um, in connection to the theater of displaced people work that I've just described. And, and I suppose in, in light of the full-scale invasion and the incredible horror and brutality that we are all now witnessing, um, I have reflected differently upon those projects and, and been thinking um, about how the, about, about resilience actually, and about resistance and how the process of telling one's story and sharing that story and coming together in that, in that way and in those venues contributed to a broader movement within kind of grassroots activism and arts activism in particular in Ukraine that has facilitated the resistance and resilience that we are seeing now. Wow. Um, so that's, that's one of the things that I have been thinking about a lot in the Ukrainian context. In terms of the kinds of theater that's going on since the full scale invasion, a bit more complicated because uh, many of the theater artists, for example, Sardarian, who I'm just speaking about, is serving in the military. Um, some of Ukraine's leading playwrights are playwrights, actors, directors. I mean, people are either in the military, in the territorial defense, have fled the war, are working, you know, contributing to humanitarian aid either in Ukraine or abroad. Um, people are making theater and people are writing, but it certainly takes a different kind of priority and a different kind of form in these circumstances. Yeah. Thank you so much for that I just didn't want to interrupt that conversation that was everything you were both saying was so wonderful I had wanted to ask um a like big question like why 
verbatim theatre, why witness theatre, but I actually think you've both given answers to that, really. I think those are really inherent in what you were saying. Um, but maybe if we keep that in mind, when I, if we should finally address this question of ethics. And actually, I'd also say, uh, I was thinking about safety, actually, Molly, when you were talking about um, witness theatre and also about uh, one hour, 18 minutes, about the, the safety of staging such a work. Um, and maybe in thinking about those ethical concerns, why, despite those, we would want to have verbatim theatre, documentary theatre, witness theatre. I guess if I can sum up that question, what are the ethical questions that you deal with when you're making verbatim theatre or when you're researching verbatim theatre for both, you know, the ethics of making it and the safety of the performers? Mm. Um, it's, it's about making sure that what you're going to end up putting on stage is not going to have a detrimental effect on those people that have shared their stories. So it's, I think it's about the responsibility of representing them uh, faithfully. And of course, we all know we can edit things in certain ways that might make things a lot more dramatic. But at the end of the day, you might end up with a play that's everyone's going to be on the edge of their seats but if the real life people are going to be really kind of upset by it um it's it's not worth doing it so for, for me it's always a, I feel like I'm kind of in the middle I've got um I've sort of got the sort of truthometer because I've got the I feel like I've got the real life people here and then I might have the director here who is wanting to kind of like soup it up a bit more and like oh maybe we can try and can we do this can we try this out I know it didn't happen like this but blah, 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 blah. um and I feel I have to kind of always because I don't have the real life people in the room um um and that and that, that is a kind of deliberate choice actually because I feel that um the work I'm making is removed from them, actually, interestingly. I know it is their words and it's, you know, without their words, there wouldn't be a there wouldn't be a show. But at the same time, the end result is still a few degrees away from them, even though it's their words said as they were said, because, you know, it's said through actors, you know, they are in costumes, they are lit, they are put on a stage. Um, they are, you know, it, it is then kind of, cut so you know you end up hopefully with you know a, a piece of art that is very much taken from life but it is not it is not their life standing up there and and even with when it's with you know the work you're talking about um molly um you know with the kids stories um i'm sure they've still been shaped um you know, because obviously life would go on forever and ever, wouldn't it? And, it? and it's got to be kind of pulled into some kind of cohesive, digestible form for, for an audience, you know, and to have, a, you know, a, a dramatic narrative as well. And, all, all, you know, all those sort of elements, um, you know, which real life isn't, isn't, isn't that without that shaping. Um, so yeah, it's about doing that shaping, but knowing that at the end of the day, these are real people and their lives are actually kind of paramount over the the show because you are just making a show at the end of the day. So um, I, and I know, you know, I know in my heart that if I'm kind of, kind of lying there in bed thinking, oh, I'm just not sure whether they'd be happy about that. You know, and then I might just pick up the phone and say, listen, um, this bit of the show isn't working. I'm wondering if I can just kind of maybe can I just sort of do this with the audience? I'm not talking about necessarily changing the words, but maybe maybe I've had to cut a character, but a certain character has said something that's kind of this did happen in one case, actually, where um, I had to cut a character um because he hadn't really properly understood i think how he was going to be you know he would be actually represented in in the show and then when it became clear that oh he didn't quite get it and then he didn't really want to be represented i was like okay i've got to cut him out of the show however he said some really important facts that i wanted to be in the piece so um i 
without uh you know giving away any kind of his identity or, or anything i could take these few he didn't mind using those few facts but he just didn't want his character to be you know performed and then i phoned up another character in the piece who emotionally sat within the same place that he did within the story and i said listen i know you didn't say this <laughs> but you are the closest emotionally to this character and I'd love these facts to be included. Is it okay if these couple of lines are said by your character? And she said, oh, yes, no, that's absolutely fine. That's how I felt anyway, and blah, blah, you know. So it was all kind of, fun. but, you know, I feel like that kind of thing, because of the kind of very kind of pure way that I, you know, do work, I have to kind of check it and go, okay, I'm going to do this. Are you okay with this? And you know, because the last thing you want her coming on going, hang on a minute, I didn't say that. You know, she might not have even re realised, but still, you know, you, you have responsibility. And I think if you're going to say, this is the way I'm going to make, put your words on stage and they're going to be edited, but they will be exactly what you said. You suddenly then you're not doing that. Um, you know, I don't know how many more plays you're going to kind of be able to keep making and get, get away with it kind of thing. So for me, it's just something that I know deep, deep down if I've pushed it a bit much. So I'll kind of go back and check. And if they say no, then you just got to think of another way creatively to maybe hit that same beat, but in a different way. So yeah, it's your own ethical compass, moral compass as well, isn't it? I think that comes into play really. And it's hard because you might have a director going, oh, if only we had this, then we'd have, that would be just an amazing scene. And you think, oh, <laughs> um that's the you know that's the battle and that's that's one of the drawbacks of verbatim but you know for all of its drawbacks um you know which are very real um there are things that people say that you know you could never make up so that's just that's just that's the beast that you're dealing with really um, yeah i think um there are some parallels actually between what you're describing like Ian. and and the kind of ethical concerns around academic research when it when it's research about living people and living artists. Um, I guess I had a, a somewhat analogous experience recently around an article that I published that was about a, a Ukrainian youth theater program. It wasn't documentary theater. It was a program in which it's actually um, an adaptation of a program that started at the Traverse Theater called Class Act, uh, in which teenagers write plays together. And so in this Ukrainian version of the project, they would each year bring 10 teenagers from a town in Western Ukraine and 10 teenagers from a town in Eastern Ukraine together to Kyiv for 10 days of playwriting workshops where the kids would be paired together and they would write these short plays. And at the end of the 10 days, their plays were staged in this huge gala event with like the most famous actors in Ukraine and the incredible directors and design. And it was really this um, beautiful way to kind of give voice to these kids and um, help them learn how to write plays. And I wrote an article about this project, which I participated in for two of the three years. And, um, it was more or less finished before the full-scale invasion, but of course needed to be rewritten um, at the end of February or in March in light of what was going on and what is going on. And um, understandably, the editors of the journal had asked, you know, well, because, because half of the kids who participated in this program were living in cities that were at that point, and some of them still occupied uh, by Russia. And understandably, the editors wanted to know, well, you know, where are the kids? Where are they now? <laughs> what are they doing now? Yeah. Um, and I did kind of through a mutual friend reach out to one of the teenage playwrights whose work is kind of especially featured in the article to see if he would want to share that information, um, which he did. I mean, he did share it, but not for publication. And I think that's completely understandable. And that's part of, I guess that's part of something that I'm learning to navigate now mm. in a different way, um, which is that it's, um, it's more important to 
respect the needs and desires of the people that I'm writing about than it is to, you know, make the most engaging narrative around it. It is. It always is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It always is. Um, Absolutely. And I, and I guess for me, it also has these more recent events have highlighted um, how, how research and documentary theater alike are often forms of advocacy. And we, and we hold a certain responsibility for understanding our own political position within that process, mm-hmm. knowing that we are not unbiased and we're not, um, you know, we're not objective observers of these people's lives. We're interpreting them and we're interpreting them with mm-hmm. a certain ideological set of values in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's important, I think, to be aware of those mm-hmm. and to be um, clear about them with our readers and with our audiences. Yeah, yeah. I think you're spot on there. Thank you so much for this. I'm, I'm just going to stop us with an eye to time because I really could, I could listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thank you. It's been fascinating. It's been great to hear, you know, um, you, about your work, Molly, as well. Thank you, same. Yeah, it's been really... No idea good. that's going on. And that's great that it is. And I hope that, you know, they can keep making you know, work out out there in Ukraine, because, you know, obviously we don't hear about any of that side of it, do we? Of course, we just... Yeah, um, it's true. We don't hear a lot about that side no. of it. Um, but about. it is happening and it is, um, it is pretty incredible. But it also, I, I think it's also important to say that it's not something that we can take for granted mm. and that our support and the support of foreign governments and all of that really yeah. is crucial. Yeah. On that note, Molly, then perhaps maybe really the the true best note to end on would be, is there anything that you would guide people listening to this podcast to any action that they would take or any research that they could do for themselves that would be of benefit to the people of Ukraine? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, well, I think certainly anybody who feels like they're in a p- position financially to donate, um, that's absolutely a priority. Uh, some of the charities that I would recommend, uh, one is called Come Back Alive. If you search Come Back Alive Ukraine, you can find a place there to donate. Um, also, Razum for Ukraine, that's R-A-Z-O-M for Ukraine. That would be two um, excellent charities that are working really effectively on the ground. Um, aside from financial donations, I think um, certainly, you know, writing your MP, making sure that um, this is a topic that remains in people's consciousness, in the news, um, and doing as much reading as possible and trying to kind of understand that there is a real complexity to this history and, um, and it's a colonial history and that one of the reasons, I mean, this is actually, no, that's too, too big a topic to get into at the end of this, but I will just say that, um, you know, we in Western English speaking world, um, we learn about Russian theater, for example. And when we learn about, you know, those of us who have studied theater history, you know, we may have uh, learned about Soviet theater as well. A Soviet theater history class is very common. I have certainly had it as an undergrad. Um, but often what we learn about when we think about Soviet history is Russian history. And in fact, um, there were a lot of other countries in the Soviet Union and those countries have their own histories and they have their own theater traditions. And I think we as theater makers and as theater scholars do have a responsibility. Oh, that reminds me, we didn't talk about your Georgia piece, so lucky. Um, oh, no. <laughs> I'm just thinking about Georgia when you mentioned, yeah, there were other countries, you know. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I don't know, maybe we don't have time for that, but I would just say like, but that's an, another, that's a really brilliant example of, of taking responsibility for hearing those stories from countries, from people in countries that we're not necessarily 
seeing coverage of in mainstream media and making sure that, and this is not only in the kind of East Central uh, European context, not only in the Russian context, not only in Central Asia, but all over the world, right? That there are so many ways in which we provide access and we gain access to certain types of knowledge from certain types of places. Um, and those kinds of knowledge are often connected to, to privilege. Um, and it is our responsibility as theater makers and as theater academics to make sure that we're looking at what else is going on and telling those other stories as well. And that's something that I think we all know to be true and we have always known to be true. But for me has become um, something I see with much greater clarity since February, 2022 and seeing that you know, people people weren't weren't seeing this war for the past eight years, and people weren't seeing Ukraine um, as you know a pivotal part of contemporary European culture, which it is, uh, and that that's partly our responsibility, as you know, as international um, artists and academics who are contributing to the body of knowledge that we have on a global scale. Um, so. Yeah, in terms of actions to take forward, that's a lesson that I'm learning. And I think it's one that, that we all have a responsibility to look at. Brilliant, thank you so much, Molly. We will link to both of those um, places to donate as well, um, just so that it's easy for you all to find listening. And um, thank you so much to both of you, not only for this conversation, but for the work that you're doing and the work that you're continuing to do. It's been such a pleasure to talk to both of you. and. Um, I look forward to seeing what you do next. This has been Practice Makes, the Oxford Reimagining Performance Podcast with Helen Dallas and Madeleine Sadenberg. Thanks for listening. <laughs>